course, is Professor Niles Romer, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies on UTD's campus. And at the end of this podcast, we're going to have an announcement to make. Indeed, indeed. Some congratulations are in order for you. Well, this is Romer. And Professor Romer, let's continue our discussion from our last podcast. Observation that I've made in my adult years because of some of the work I've done and whatnot, and I want to see if it's I'm totally off base, or if you might be able to say, Scott, it's a good point and explain it to mm-hmm. me. But I've noticed in meeting Holocaust survivors' kids, and I, and I know that's kind of a funny term because Holocaust survivors' kids are grandparents now. <laughs> but I, I noticed that for the most part, they have done very well in society and their communities and have had good careers. And I always wondered if their parents being in the Holocaust, if that was because of the determination that the family insisted for the kids, or is that an observation that I'm off base completely? I think, you know, with all these things, it's always difficult to generalize. If you think about, you know, how can we at all make comparisons beyond, you know, the individuals, everyone would have experienced it in different ways, would have come into a new life in a different way, and so on and so forth. One of the things that uh, is noticeable is that many survivors have this determination to to have to not just survive but to renew life to build new commu- families and eventually also to build new communities and you see that really early on in the DP camps with record numbers of new new babies being born you see it with marriages um, being um, officiated in the DP camps um, which I think all speaks to this you know w- almost wish to, to renew life, but also, you know, to enable them to continue to testify to what had happened. So these two things propelled them in lots of ways. But I think many of them uh, might not have initially thought about it in the, in the words of success or, um, you know, in the ways in which we normally think about careers or something, but happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, if anything, was probably a strong driving force of many that, for that reason, also early on, would have not shared the experience with their children because they thought that this would have been traumatizing for the children, would have placed too much of a burden on them so that many of the survivors initially never talked about their experience to their respective children and did that precisely to allow them actually in, in whatever possible ways they could to have a normal childhood. How hard was it for survivors to adjust to life? I, I, I've seen some survivors that still have moments of depression. One lady told me she still can't look at a German shepherd. How hard was it over the years and the people that you've worked with and met? Well, I think, again, it's something, you know, that take our founding director, Professor Oshwat. I mean, in many ways, if you meet her, she's probably one of the most cheerful ladies that you could ever Mm -hmm. speak to. Um, she is, you know, been around and gets excited about students. And so in lots of ways, when you meet her that way, you would think, all of that is kind of put behind her, and she's, a, you know, lots of ways a model of, of an individual who very successfully dealt with the past. But I think there's a private element of that that has always stayed with her. And to this day, you know, when she gives, for example, public lectures, there's a very eloquent side to her right. where she talks about her experience as a child in Budapest, and she goes up and down the history, and she, she shows maps. And then when, when you watch her very closely, it's almost when she comes to having to 
you know, turn toward her own personal story. And she almost stops for a moment and hesitates in a point and then kind of goes forward because that part is still painful for her. And it's not, even though she's probably given this lecture, I don't know, a hundred times and then some, she's written her memoirs about it, but it's far from being resolved. There are lots of individuals um, that, you know, in many ways have been successful and I met quite a few, but for example, fairly innocent things as a train, right. sound of a train, you know, has them, sh you know, run shutters down their spine because right. it reminds them of the deportation. So right. it's never quite gone uh, and it's always there. And it's also something, you know, which I think nowadays we're dealing more with a society that is uh, more accustomed to addressing and, and talking about the traumas of the past. It would have been very different in the societies of the 50s and 60s where this was not acceptable. You didn't talk about these things openly and publicly. Many of the survivors early on did not talk to their children about their respective experiences. That's something that nowadays you still see in testimonies that the Shoah Foundation collected, that at the end of these testimonies, family members kind of join. Right. In, and it very often, invariably, comes to the point that they acknowledge that this is the first time that they've ever right. heard these stories. Right, right. So I think there's a, you know, dealing with trauma on an individual basis within a society and then across generations is a challenging issue. And um, we're largely here with Holocaust survivors dealing with an example where there is a cultural uh, remembrance with many other genocides, it doesn't quite exist in the same manner. Give you one example that I found after you know, many years now of learning about the Holocaust, teaching about the Holocaust, we showed a movie a couple of years ago called Article 175. Article 175 was one of the articles that prohibited um, any kind of sexual interrelationship between men in Germany and, and between women. And various homosexuals were persecuted by the Nazis. When those um, individuals survived after 45, they entered a German society that had remained hostile to homosexuals, almost all the same. Mm -hmm. They would return to their respective families and most often would be unable to even talk to their mothers or fathers about what they experienced because they never told them about themselves. Right, and right. so this movie interviewed these old men in the 80s and 90s who were breaking down into tears because for the very first time they ever talked about it. This had been their private and silent memory all along. So right. there you're dealing with a, you know, an issue of you know, almost past it continues to be traumatizing. Think, think how hard that must have been to hold that in your whole right. life. Well, and, and, and live a and life. Live and live a long a life, and, and in particular, if it, this is something that played itself out, you know, within your own family. I mean, imagine right. you survive all of this, you survive camps, you come back, your mom happily greets you, and you remain silent about all the things, all the horrors that you had experienced. So, um, in other words, there's not a one answer to, to, I think, to this issue of how individuals successfully or not dealt with trauma. And it's also a question of what is success in this? Uh, how do we actually measure this, um, whether someone has you know, dealt with this in an effective manner or not? You know, the next thing I want to ask you, and I'm sure you've dealt with it and talked about it many times, but I'd like to hear what you, you would say. How do you address or handle all the platforms out there that people use to say the Holocaust never happened. It's really a problem these days. I mean, if we go back to the beginning of the internet, we were all very quickly 
sold on the idea that this would solve all society's problems. <laughs> it would you know, provide endless opportunity for us to learn, to connect across the globe, and we all would live almost happily ever, ever after. So if you watch some of the early commercials out of the, from Microsoft and others, it's almost as if they were releasing the new gospel of sorts. <laughs> That didn't quite turn out that way, and we started to realize that the same problems that bedevil our society have resurfaced in other ways now in the kind of virtual world. And I think for us, this is really a challenging issue because it is, um, makes it harder for us to be audible and to be noticeable. If, there, if I put something on Twitter out on Holocaust, there are probably as many hashtags Holocaust that are about deniers as there are others on and off, depending on the time. So that makes it more difficult to be noticeable and heard. Um, and it also returns us to the issue that there's something to be valued about direct conversations, about me being in classroom, about me lecturing in front of a particular community, establishing lasting relationships. Um, but it's also is, is an important issue in terms of t teaching now, you know, our students, how do you actually tell the difference? Some of these websites are quite sophisticated. There are some that look like Wikipedia, but right. they're not Wikipedia. Right. But they right. use the same design, and but they're denouncing virtually every aspect about the Holocaust. So how do you teach students how to make these differences? How do we get back to understanding what is actually evidence, what is trustworthy, and how, if we're uncertain, how do we evaluate that? Because there's so much noise out there right now that I think most often we're drowning in it, and we're not any longer as clear about what is valuable, what is trustworthy, what is relevant, and so on and so forth. Well, you know, you and I have lived through, uh, and everybody, uh, where they mentioned the final survivor of World War One has passed away. Right. So we're not far away from probably hearing the final veteran or final survivor of World War Two has passed away. That's going to make your job a lot harder to keep this message about the Holocaust out there. Well, because there's not going to be anybody left to say, wait a minute, I was there. Well, I think the idea that, you know, we require the survivors as a way of you know, authenticating or validating that right, that right. had actually happened always seemed to me to press them into service for something that should be self-evident to begin with. I mean, there's no grounds upon which anyone can make any claims whatsoever about the Holocaust as not having occurred. It's from all the genocides, the most heavily documented one. So I think we don't need survivors in order to, to, to kind of tell us that this mm -hmm. is actually what happened. I think we're losing, you know, something of the authentic voices. We're losing something of that, you know, kind of not just of telling us what happened, but of, you know, of themselves. You know, and it's quite telling, again, if I go back to our founding director, Professor Ashra, you know, if I go out and lecture, I'm, I'm entertaining, I'm whatever, right? right? right. I, I do my thing. And people appreciate that and like that. Whenever I stand next to her, that's a different quality. Right. Because at the end, people come up to the stage, they want, even teenagers, they want to have, a, you know, they take the selfies next to her and all kinds of things. And there's a personal related relationship that gets established, that one acquires only through the presence of someone who actually was there. Right. And I think we're losing sight of that. Um, it's interesting, we're trying to um, kind of address this in other ways, testimonies. I mean, we've all right. you know, been mindful of the fact that this was 
going to happen that the last survivors will pass, and therefore individuals like you and others have collected testimonies. Um, we have a vast archive of over 50,000 testimonies with the Spielberg Shoah Foundation. Um, there's now the new kind of variation on the theme, a 3D uh, version of a survivor who you can kind of engage in a conversation, almost seamlessly right, right. talk to that individual. But I think you're still losing something about that presence and authenticity that um, as people connect you know, to the, the past in a different way. And you see this very much in a center like this. You know, Students have always gravitated to her because she, she has something that you can't quite you know, recreate if, if you have not been right, there. Right. You can be educating, you can be challenging, you can be all kinds of things, but you never quite will have that voice. Was there a particular way that you know of that the survivors were able to literally survive and go on with life, normal life after what they went through? Or was it just an individual thing, how they handled it? I think it? it was most often an individual thing. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, there, we, you know, as a historian, we'd like to kind of classify this as a, the second generation, the third generation, and therefore we kind of pick apart something that would have had individual dimensions and we make it as part of something that manifested itself in all these lives. But I would have thought everything in the end, it's you, it's me, it's individuals, and whatever we have had similar experiences or not, but... Those are your very individual experiences, and they would have played themselves always out in a kind of slightly different key and a slightly different color uh, than the, the next one. Now, as a professor of history, you've done so much research. You've met so many people that you've talked to and everything. When you look back and you think about everything, was there ever where you pointed your finger and said, this single moment, this is where it began, this is where it started? Were you able to like pinpoint, like, oh, my gosh, this is where it all turned over. You know, that's obviously what the, the very first historians have always searched for, this question of where, where did it all begin? When was the decision made? When did German culture become, or German society become a, a community that was ready to embark on a global genocide? And in lots of ways, this you know, interest in, in origins is really a quest without ever finding its its real solution because this never will have we will never be able to find that one particular moment right. uh, because there were too many different things that came to bear there's too many different actors there's not just you know when Hitler conceived of the idea but also when others were willing to follow so there are way too many different dynamics at, at play for us to say this is where it all began but I think this question of where it all began has also blinded us a little bit to seeing it as something that continuously evolved. In other words, we have always been interested in when the decision was made, when did the Nazis embark, and we have paid less attention to the fact that it continuously radicalized and continued to evolve all the way down to 45. So we've always been preoccupied with the question of the beginnings, and I think have paid a little less attention to its continuous change as it you know, unfolded over during the course of the Second World War. That also radically changed from the beginning parts where Third Reich was you know, victorious in, right. in a breathtaking way to the part where they were defeated uh, and um, you know, pretty much destroyed uh, across the, the board. But one thing remained the same. They continued to pursue the Holocaust. Have you ever had discussions, because it's interesting what you're saying, but have you guys ever had discussions um, 
about what the world would be like today if Hitler had won? It's a terrifying thought. Um, you know, if anything, and I think we got into this last time when you asked me about, so at what point did Germans actually start to change? And I think I tried to answer that question with the, you know, 45 liberation or defeat of sorts. Right. Um, so if you flip it around, what would have happened if Nazi Germany would have been successful? And there are, you know, there are some historians, and I'm not an expert in military history, but some that argue that when the Third Reich attacked the Soviet Union, they were essentially engaging in a gamble. And they were mindful of the fact that they were confronted with a you know, tremendous enemy, but they were hopeful that if they could accomplish a quick and decisive victory, that it would put them in control of resources, oil and the likes, that would allow them to resupply themselves in order to face off the United States. So if you're thinking about a moment where, according to some historians, it might have been feasible to think that the Third Reich could have been successful, then it's probably in that summer of 41. They had just successfully completed numerous military campaigns. Um, they had you know, stalled themselves in Europe, and they were now, according to some, you know, launching themselves into another attack in a way of anticipating the entry of the United States. That's the most terrifying of, of thoughts about, you know, quite literally, yes. I think, you know, what that would have meant for, for me, you know, on an individual base and how that would have played itself out. Luckily, it did not. <laughs> um, but it also doesn't mean that everything in 45 simply came to an end. I think, again, you know, you asked me about beginnings. Beginnings are tricky, and so are endings. Right, right. So we like to bracket things off. This is where it started. This is where it ended. But in lots of ways, the forces that compelled Germans into, into genocide, those ideas and concepts of race and otherness, of hate, they unfortunately did not die in 45. I mean, unfortunately, if anything, in the last, say, 10 years or so, they are more visible again here as well as elsewhere. Um, whether you are in Germany or whether you're in England or whether you're in France or in the United States. So the end, unfortunately, was also not the end to all of the forces and ideas that contributed to the rise of the right. Third Reich. All right, when UTD started, a long time ago. 50 years ago. The Ackerman Center wasn't here. Tell me about the beginnings. How did this all come about? So, uh, the, you know, 50 years ago, the, the university was not quite yet founded by the Research Institute. And then a couple of years later, Professor Ashrat was hired initially to teach uh, literature. She had just gra she had graduated from UT Austin with a degree in literature, and she started to teach European literature and, and, and in particular, German literature, one of her big passions. But then in the 80s, she started to introduce here and there also classes on, on the Holocaust. And it was seen as something important and relevant within this small cluster of, of courses that were offered here. But what she possibly could not have even anticipated or dreamt was when she started talking about it, she all of a sudden met various individuals in the community who were very interested in learning about her experience and who were very quickly highly supportive of her various endeavors. And so out of these early beginnings emerged the first endowment that created the Jaffe Library, mm -hmm. which was in the 80s. 
And if she found a lot of open doors in the community, then she possibly would have also not right away anticipated that the university that really barely existed as a university had also made up their mind that they were going to line up um, behind Holocaust studies. But that's exactly what happened. So the university itself, our former provost, Dr. Rosenthal, became highly supportive of this Ackerman Center that initially really comprised only a professor who had been hired to teach literature and started teaching about the Holocaust. And over the years then, with a lot of her, her genius and charisma, she built a, a growing program, which in 2006 resulted in my hire. This was the second one. And then shortly thereafter in 2010, Professor Patterson was hired as a third one. 2011, we were given this wonderful space here. And it's when we entered this space, uh, you know, we became formally the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is hard to, uh, you know, estimate is once you have a space, you in lots of ways become much more real. You know, up until then, I had an office, she had an office, I had a course, she had a course. Once this became a center, and we had a certificate that we offered, this became more real. And ever since, it has continuously grown and grown and grown and grown. And it's, you know, and so has the university, obviously. And so our respective role on campus and in the community has also grown. And also our responsibilities that we have. When you're in discussions with kids or you're teaching the kids, they don't like being called kids, by the way, but, you know. When these adults say these adults, say, yes. you know, um, uh, the millennials that are taking over yes. the world, um, you see their reactions. You're seeing when they're hearing something for the first time or when they're hearing something different than what they knew. What do you see in the, in the, uh, in the students when they, when they come in? Because what are they expecting? What do they already know? What do they think they know? And then how do you shock them? Well, you know, many of the students coming in, undergraduates in particular, coming into the, our courses have, I suppose, a, somehow a curiosity. That's why they sign up for this class maybe to begin with. And they, I think, have often a sense that they actually know about this because they've learned in high school, they've gone, they know there was a First World War, there was a Versailles Treaty, there was Hitler coming to power. And so they can kind of tell you. Piece it together. Piece it together. Yeah, yeah. And when they realize that this course is so little about those bits or about understanding those things and the ways in which they understood them, but all about actually engaging with big questions for which we don't have ready-made answers, I think that's when they stop for a moment and, and start to understand that there's something that they start to wrestle with themselves. So, you know, one of the um, examples where that happens really early in the courses, you, you you know, you think, well, so what is Germany in 33? So if you, they have the idea that Germany is in 33 already anti-Semitic and that everyone is already um, almost ready for war and ready for Holocaust. And when you then kind of complicate that and say, well, Jews in Germany were actually not an isolated, marginal group. They were in lots of ways fully accepted and integrated Germans with one difference. They were Jewish and not Catholic and not Protestant. They owned German soccer clubs. They uh, went to the pubs. They were your neighbors. Mm -hmm. And how you, how you get from that to their respective neighbors all of a sudden turning the other way, not greeting them any longer, how this sudden change occurs. And they get to this very quickly when you read with them diaries in 33, where individuals very suddenly realize that they don't necessarily assume that their neighbors are all Nazis, but they 
are very clearly aware of the fact that they cannot assume that they're friends any longer. And this uncertainty changes everything about their daily affairs. So one of the memoirs that we read is about a family um, that lived in Berlin, was a working class, the father was engaged with the you know, kind of trade unions and, and socialism, so he had a couple of pamphlets at home that were you know, part of the working class rhetoric and all that. Hitler comes to power and they're realizing oh, there's a potential danger. We've got to get rid of these books. How do we get rid of the books? We can take them and throw them in the trash. Neighbors might find them. We can burn them, but then the smoke comes out of our window. Neighbors might wonder. So it becomes a big issue. How do we at all do this if all of a sudden you're not sure any longer that the very people who have been your friends, whose kids have played with your kids, are not that any longer? And I think that's when they start to realize also how many things that we in our society take for granted are things that need actually our presence and our involvement. And that, you know, just as much as things could very slippily change there, things that we hold very dear, our community, our openness, our respect, our, you know, um, ability to cross communities and cultures, something that I enjoy here very much, one should not take those for granted, but one needs to you know, understand that many of the cherished ideas that we have there they are themselves part of history. They've not always been around. Take democracy. Right. Um, take any of the other cherished ideas. They've not been around all that long. You know, so it's still an experiment, and it only is going to succeed insofar as we are willing to to make it work. You know, and that that leads me into the uh, final thing that I wanted to talk with you about today. The world today seems very volatile, and and, and I'm sure that if we asked any generation, they would say the same thing. There was always something going on. So you're in a room with world leaders now, lecturing and talking to them. What warning signs would you give them? What would you tell them? How would, how would you, you know, have your opportunity to meet with them and to make things better? What, what are you going to tell them? Well, that's, a, you know, I'm happy that you're asking all the, 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 the easy questions at the end. So just how do you solve? Come on, solve it right now. Well, how do you solve world peace and happiness all in one go? Uh, I think it you know, almost goes back to what I just said. It, it is recognizing that the things that are important to us require us. And that in the, in the same time, you know, case, we all individually have a responsibility because you know, if you look at the early years of, of the Nazi regime, you know, we often think about it, you know, we have these big concepts. We think about totalitarian regimes. Right. And then we think there was this absolute leader out of Hitler. He had all these military, paramilitary units. They were coercing everyone into doing what they were doing. True, not true. What is true is that ultimately early on the Third Reich had its power not just because of the SS or SA or whatever it was, but because of one's neighbor who was reinforcing their particular views, who was ready to accuse you if you held some other views that were mm -hmm. detrimental to the Third Reich or something like that. So I think we have a responsibility. I remember one of the very first lectures that I ever attended about the Holocaust was in the 80s in Hamburg. There was a brilliant young historian that arrived in Hamburg, and we were all, we had, he was one of the young ones, and we were like, finally, someone new, someone young, let's go listen. And so he gave this very erudite lecture about 
uh, the Holocaust, and we learned and we wrote and another page. And then at the end, I think it was an older lady who stood up and said, okay, but what is it in the end what could have prevented all of this from, from to have occurred? And so he was actually a bright man, and so he all of a sudden put his notes to the side and, and stopped short and thought, this is actually the, the one question that all the erudition cannot right. answer so easily. And he stopped and he said, decency. And I think that's what it comes wow. down to. The things that actually wow. are required are things that we have. Right. And we just have to believe in them right. and, and have to, to, to make them work. Professor, it's such a pleasure to listen to you. I could listen for hours. So we're going to stop it there till next time. Appreciate your time, man. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. We ended the show, but I promised you a little surprise at the end, and we're going to get into this at our next podcast. Uh, um, Professor Romer is now the interim dean at the School of Arts and Humanities at UTD. So congratulations. Thank you very much. And we will talk about that next time. That's our little cliffhanger. Absolutely. See you next time. See you next time.